0: Hi and welcome to the anti people pleasing podcast. I'm your host, Joe Westwood, the codependency coach. Each week, I answer your questions on codependency, people pleasing and all things relationship related submitted to me via Instagram. You can follow me on the gram at Joe Westwood to submit your questions in my stories every Monday. You can also click the link in the show notes to take you straight there. So you ready? Our first question today is from Frankie who asked why when things are going well do I feel something bad is about to happen? I can't live in a moment. So I'm going to answer this question from the perspective of codependency first and then from a broader perspective. If you identify as codependent then one of your coping mechanisms will be hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is often mistaken for being highly sensitive or being intuitive or an empath, though there are some commonalities. The crossover between the trauma response of hypervigilance and being highly sensitive might look like noticing the following things. The difference in sound and tempo of different people's footsteps coming up the stairs. Very subtle shifts in people's voices, facial expressions or body language small shifts in the atmosphere or mood of a room or a conversation. The difference, however, in being a well-managed and resourced highly sensitive person or empath and someone who is hyper-vigilant is that the naturally intuitive person is calm, relaxed and neutral and just happens to notice these things without it really registering or stressing them out. The hypervigilant person on the other hand is running a background track of anxiety, constantly on emotional high alert, always subconsciously scanning their surroundings for any changes that they might need to be aware of and react to to keep themselves safe. Just a quick side note here, the concept of being highly sensitive or a highly sensitive person is the work of Dr Elaine Aron, who I will link to in the show notes in case you want to find out more about that. So this might seem obvious for people who have come from very chaotic and volatile backgrounds but it also applies to people who have experienced the type of little t trauma that made them into people pleasers. The ones who were and are still always seeking out the very fine, detailed and nuanced ways into another person's affections and therefore hopefully gaining their praise or validation. So you can see that when we are hypervigilant, our brains are always looking out for how things could go wrong. This will be heightened when things are going well, because the feeling of something being consistently good is unfamiliar to us. So to keep ourselves safe, we are always anticipating when things will go wrong. So it could be that there's some of this going on for you. It could also be the broader concept of foreboding joy, which Brene Brown talks about, which I guess is a kind of collective societal hypervigilance. It's the feeling, the expectation that Things couldn't possibly be this good. So we try to mentally and emotionally prepare ourselves and preempt the bad times that must inevitably be coming whenever we feel joy. When explaining the concept of foreboding joy, Brown gives this great example. She describes the opening scene of a film It's Christmas time, everywhere is beautifully decorated, all the lights are up. It's night time and a family are packed into the car, they're driving on Christmas Eve. They're heading down the motorway, all laughing and singing along to Christmas songs in the car. It's such a joyful scene. What happens next? Car crash, right? Even the media that we consume for entertainment reflects this feeling of too good to be true. On Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, Brene Brown said, The most terrifying, difficult emotion we experience is joy. When we lose our tolerance for vulnerability, joy becomes foreboding. I'm not going to soften into this moment of joy because I'm scared it's going to be taken away. We're trying to dress rehearse tragedy so we can beat vulnerability to the punch. Brown goes on to say that the key to experiencing joy is practicing gratitude. As many spiritual teachers have been telling us for millennia, gratitude is the key to being present and being able to fully sink into and experience this moment. In the show notes, I have linked to a video of Brene Brown speaking with Oprah about foreboding joy if you'd like to hear her speak more on that. However, especially for codependent people who tend to get ourselves into toxic and dysfunctional relationships, We have to be careful not to trip into toxic positivity and spiritual bypassing by slapping gratitude onto harmful situations to try and make them be okay. We have the difficult job of ensuring that we stay grounded in the reality of our situation, as open and willing to walk away from something that doesn't work, as we are to sink into the joy of something that really is working. When practised in its truest form and not in a bullshit positivity way, gratitude can also help with the tough decisions that we have to make. I speak to so many people who are afraid to leave what they know are bad situations, partly because they cannot see or are not fully connecting with everything and everyone else that they have in their lives all the friendships, all the love and support that is available to them and all the possibilities that will be open to them once they free up their time and energy when they leave a toxic and draining relationship. So my lovely, this is your opportunity to delve deeper into your recovery journey. Trust the data, i.e. what you know to be true and lean on logic. Start to learn some self-trust and practice gratitude in moments when joy becomes foreboding. So, our second question today comes from Danny and it kicks off a mini segment here in the middle of the podcast that I am going to call Anxious While Dating. So, Danny said, I went on two dates and felt attached, got anxious waiting for a text. Is this a codependent behavior? Okay, so there's not a whole lot to go on here, Danny, but I can almost hear the chorus of my followers, regular listeners, and clients shouting yes. However, we all know that I speak in paragraphs so I'm going to suggest some questions to ask yourself that might provide some further insight for you. What exactly do you mean by attached and how anxious were or are you? There is a difference between anxiety, i.e. your mind freaking you out on the future's behalf based on worst case scenarios that haven't happened. And the natural excitement and anticipation you're going to feel when you like someone, have been on a couple of good dates with them and are eager to hear from them. So are you able to distinguish between those two? Next question. Why were you anxious? Again, was it simply excitement and anticipation after a great date Or is the anxiety arising from being attached to someone who is distant, avoidant, or simply an inconsistent communicator? Is this a pattern for you? Do you often find yourself feeling very anxiously attached to someone very early on in the dating process? Also, what is it about this person or this situation that made you feel attached? This links to the last question because if it's a pattern, you might realise that it doesn't really matter who it is that you're dating, how aligned or mismatched you are, that you feel attached to anyone who shows an interest in you. It's a different story if you're feeling attached because you have a great connection and chemistry with this person and you're just excited to build the momentum in what could be a promising relationship. And the final question I have for you is Are there other traits of codependency that you relate to? Does this feeling of anxiety and attachment around your date sit within a broad scope of people-pleasing and anxiety-driven behaviours? I.e., is this just one of many codependent things you're doing? As you follow me on Instagram, you might have already looked through my archive of videos and posts that will help you identify some of the common traits of codependency. But in case anyone needs a quick refresher, here are some of the biggies. Overgiving, your time, money and energy to the point of exhaustion. Manipulating with kindness, i.e. doing things for people in the hope that they'll meet your needs in return instead of just asking for them to be met. The inability to set, express and maintain boundaries with other people and yourself. A constant need for external validation and reassurance. Struggling to identify your own feelings without direction or feedback from outside sources. Consistently ignoring red flags and getting into dysfunctional, abusive or one-way relationships. And the fact that you were brought up in a home where emotional intelligence and maturity was low, where parental figures in some way parentified you or you were valued for doing rather than being. So in conclusion, something like feeling attached after a couple of dates and feeling anxious to get a text isn't in and of itself a codependent behaviour. But if you find that these feelings are very intense and unmanageable and they come as part of a larger package of dysfunctional behaviors it could well be a marker for codependency remembering that relatively healthy secure people don't do random codependent behaviors you're either codependent and codependent everywhere or that's just not what's going on for you okay up next we have this from amy I argued with the guy I'm seeing and he asked for time. How can I deal with anxiety while I wait? And how long should I wait before reaching out? It's been three days. So I would be interested to know some more details about your relationship to give you a more accurate answer. Like how long have you been seeing each other? I.e. how well do you know each other? And what does seeing each other mean? In the UK context, it usually means that you're in the early dating phase. Seeing each other regularly, exclusively, kind of pre-official relationship status. So that's what I'm going to work off of. If we were talking this out in a coaching call, I'd want to know the details about how long you've been seeing each other and how you define this relationship. And indeed, if it has been defined in any way. As a precursor to knowing what your communication is usually like and what kind of boundaries and expectations have been discussed between you at this stage. I also don't have any details about the argument or the conversation that happened afterwards, if there was one. But the thing that comes up for me over and over again when I consider this question is that unless you have excellent, clear communication with this person and a level of trust and understanding that naturally comes in time, then the act of taking time away from you with no idea when they are going to reappear would be anxiety inducing for anyone. It feels quite unfair and immature to say they need time but not state how much time and not let you know when they will be back in touch. Again, especially if this is someone that you haven't been with for very long. This might be different if you'd been together for five years and you know that when your partner says they need time that it will be a day or two and they'll come back round. They just need their space to decompress and process and then they'll be ready to talk. Because you've known each other for a long time and you know each other deeply, There's a level of trust and knowing between you that you can work it out. But assuming that you don't have that, that you haven't been with this person for a long time, you're now left burdened with not only the anxiety of them doing a disappearing act, but also wondering when you should reach out, when of course the right thing to do when someone has asked for space is to give them that space and let them come to you when they are ready. But here we are again with the question of, when will that be? The anxiety would be much easier to manage if you had some parameters to work within. And yes, there is some responsibility for you here too. It sounds like there's some codependency or anxious attachment that you can absolutely be working on to soothe yourself. But this is obviously an ongoing process and not something that will be resolved in the time it takes for your person to resurface. So, what you can do to manage your anxiety in the meantime is bring your focus back to you. Ask yourself, What's Amy doing about Amy? Try your best to focus on you and not your partner during this time. Try to go about your days as normal and try your best to keep redirecting your thoughts back to you when they inevitably wander into further anxiety, resulting in you being distracted and procrastinating on or avoiding the things that you know you need to get done. Your life has to continue regardless of how much time or space this other person needs. I would also suggest that this is a great space and time for you to assess what's going on with this connection. Is this person a good match for you? Did their reaction to the argument feel proportionate and reasonable? Is this the kind of communication or pattern that you want to establish in a relationship? Does this kind of behavior work for you? I know the answers to these questions will be hard to swallow right now whilst you're in anxiety and probably guilt too for upsetting your person. All you want is for them to come back to you and for everything to be okay again. When we come from this place, it's possible that we can set up and get stuck in a very dysfunctional pattern from very early on in a relationship. As you asked this question a couple of weeks back, I'd be super interested to know how this all went down in the end. If you did end up resolving things, how was it resolved and how did it make you feel? Did it feel like it was handled in a mature and kind way? Were you able to find a way forward together? Or do you feel that this has now set the tone for a pattern of emotional control via avoidance and the silent treatment? It might seem extreme to suggest that, but this kind of situation is exactly how that kind of pattern can get established. Look, the way they reacted and reconnected with you, if that happened, might be totally reasonable, but that also doesn't mean that it has to feel okay to you. It's absolutely acceptable to figure out for yourself that you need someone who is more communicative than avoidant, even when things are difficult. That's why it's super important to think about what you want rather than centering this person and their needs and wondering when would be the right time for you to swoop in and try and rectify this. And our final question today is from Anna who asked, is it okay to call someone out for being codependent or should you just be supportive? Thank you so much for this question. So one of the many, many fun things about being codependent is that we are often brought up by and around other codependent people. So of course, I work with my clients on their own issues with codependency. But once we've gotten over the first few personal hurdles, it's not uncommon for the topic of a codependent close family member or friend to come up. Naturally, as we start to notice these patterns and behaviours in ourselves, they become more clear and obvious in the people around us too. Look, I'm not sure how well the concept of calling out ever really works in interpersonal relationships, unless of course someone is doing or saying something truly heinous. And even though calling out may be exactly what is needed, it often doesn't have the desired effect, which is to encourage or shock the person into changing. Of course, it depends on your interpretation of what calling out is and what your relationship is with them and how intensely the codependent behavior is affecting you. Basically, it's going to be quite different if this is your partner or a very close family member than if it's a friend or work colleague that you don't spend that much time with. So I'm going to lay out two different scenarios for you here based on whether you want to maintain a relationship with this person or not. So let's start with if you want to maintain a relationship with them. In this case, if you have this level of connection and communication, you may want to find a way to speak with them about their behaviors directly, maybe even naming codependency if you feel like that would be heard and understood. Always remembering the principles of nonviolent communication, approaching the subject with compassion, using I statements, and staying away from accusations or blame. A great way to begin any difficult conversation is by asking questions and allowing people to speak for themselves rather than making assumptions or again, accusations about their behavior. If the conversation is well received, you might want to direct them towards some resources like this podcast or my Instagram account, for example. I also have a resources highlight on Instagram that has all my favorite recommended resources featured, including books, podcasts, meetings, and YouTube series what is really important to know is that this is as far as you can go. You cannot start buying books for them or looking up therapists or checking up on their progress to see if they've started doing the work. That has to come from them. It can get very messy very quickly when we get overly involved in somebody else's recovery or healing. We can love someone and desperately not want to see them in pain and yet whether they do the work or not, is not and cannot be our business. It must come from them because that's the only way it will be effective. Both things can be true. My amazing friend Kat says that if someone asks her about getting into addiction recovery that she will happily tell them where the meeting is and point them in the direction of the website. If their response is awesome, thank you, I'm going to look that up, she knows they're likely serious about it. If their response is a series of questions, them wanting and expecting handholding or in some way to get recovery by proximity to her recovery, she knows that they don't really mean it and it's not going to stick. I think this is such a smart and simple way to discern between someone who is taking actions on their issues for themselves and someone who either wants another person to do it for them or they're doing it because they feel that they should and not because they really want it. So, the next thing you need to do with someone you want to maintain a relationship with is start setting and maintaining boundaries with them. I think of dysfunctional relationships as a two player game. They only work when both people are playing. When one person opts out, in this case, the person who has been allowing, accepting, and therefore enabling, and maybe even to some extent encouraging the codependent behaviour, the game stops working. So, you have to be the person that opts out of the codependent role play. With either clearly expressed boundaries, or by putting more distance into the relationship, which brings me nicely on how to manage this if you don't want to maintain a relationship with them. You can either express a clear boundary, basically a breakup, like, "We're done, I'm out, I don't want to be a part of this anymore kind of energy, or if that's not necessary or possible, you put in lots of boundaries to protect your energy and manage the relationship, and you put in as much distance as you can. There are consequences for actions, including codependent behaviours. Those consequences might look like being called out, or they might look like this person just getting to see you a lot less. Whatever that looks like in this case, Anna, remember it's up to you to find the appropriate way for your relationship with this person to opt out of the dysfunctional game. Okay, my loves, that is a wrap for today. I'd like to remind you that my codependency recovery community, Wildly Worthy, is open now. For less than £50 a month, you can get access to weekly Q&A coaching calls with me, as well as my full online codependency recovery course, and a community of people who are all on this recovery journey with you. So that means a totally supportive, judgment-free zone. Wildly Worthy is open to all women and female socialised, non-binary people. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Anti-People-Pleasing Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to or follow the pod. It helps more people find us and join the movement to have healthier, more fulfilling relationships. that's why it's super important to think about what you want rather than entering this (laughs) rather than entering this person fucking hell okay